0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Max Meng from the University of California, San Francisco, leading a panel discussion regarding renal cell carcinoma. On the panel, we have Dr. Steve Borjan from Mayo Clinic, Dr. Viraj Master from Emory University, and Dr. Tim McClure from Whale Cornell Medicine.
1: So uh, good morning, everybody. Well, thanks for uh, joining us um, for another COVID lecture. And really wanted to thank uh, Lindsay Hampson here at um, UCSF, but also the whole group of collaborators who put on a great uh, you know, s- lecture series the last couple months. Um, and I think the goal for today was to talk about just a few sort of challenging cases in managing uh, renal cell carcinoma. And I think what uh, we tried to do is to put together some some cases and scenarios where you're not necessarily going to find the answer in a textbook or sort of, and to add, you know address some really practical issues that come up all the time. Again, where we may not have you know uh, trial evidence or things to refer to. Um, and really, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, three uh, great colleagues and more importantly, great friends: uh, Steve Borjan from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, Viraj Master from Emory, and Tim McClure from uh, Cornell. Um, and you know, just to point out, I think Tim Tim is unique in his training and experience, uh, being uh, you know trained in radiology, interventional radiology, and urology tim how many people are there like you in the u.s right now
0: uh there's like there's one other guy who just does urology and then art raston had trained in did some fellowship training in, in ir but didn't do everything so great so i think tim for sure brings a sort of a unique
1: perspective for all of us um and again you know i think steve and Baraj with their extensive experience will you know give a lot of insight into some of these uh cases So uh, just some objectives, you know, I think we're gonna cover a little bit of the gamut from small renal masses, talk a little bit about some variant histology and also uh, move on to advanced disease and uh, IVC tumor thrombus. So case number one, and again, during the course of things, feel free to send in questions. Carissa will be monitoring that. We can address them either as we go along or at the end of the session. Um, Hey, Dr. Mayne, just real quick. Yes. Dr. Meng,
2: uh, you're in presenter mode. You might want to switch, you swap your displays, so that we, oh,
1: uh, the so, participants, can see your main slide. Okay. Let me just see here for one second. If I uh, does that help? No. Uh, no. No. Hit, you know, top, top left. Hit swap displays. Uh oh. No. Okay. Yeah, That's good. good. Is that better? Right. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you, Carissa. Uh, so the first is a 28-year-old lady who, again, came with uh, some, you know, nonspecific abdominal pain, started with an ultrasound, and then an MRI. Uh, we have a, one coronal image, and then the next slide will show the axial MR, uh, but what was called a 3.5-centimeter Bosniak 3 lesion on the left. No other family history of cancers or renal diseases. Serum creatinine is 0.6, and sort of went around and saw many people and got multiple uh, opinions about how to manage this. Her main goal was sort of a really, the least invasive approach, you know, 28 year old attorney, really busy. So um, we'll start, I guess, with uh, Steve and Baraj, just sort of in general, how would you talk about, counsel this patient? What would you sort of quote the risk of malignancy? And then I'll show the MR and maybe get Tim's input about imaging
0: characteristics.
3: Sure. Thanks, Max, and thanks again for the invitation to be part of this. It's really fun. Um, You know, I think a couple first thoughts here. Um, The the first thought would be the characterization of the cyst as Bosniak three. You know, I would like that to be read by our own radiologists or ones at your institution that have extensive experience. Um, because I do think that there's quite a bit of variability in how these Bosniak classifications are made. And especially with cystic lesions, there can be the confusion of, is it a true Bosniak 3 cyst? Is it a a lesion with necrosis that can can, can get confused? So I think, um, you know, having some expert radiology interpretation is critical in making these management decisions. But going under the then assumption that it's a Bosniak 3 cyst, um, you know, the general statistics are roughly 50% malignancy in these. Um, doesn't mean biologic behavior, just histology is malignancy in, in about 50%. So in somebody at 28 with what you're describing as essentially no other medical problems, normal renal function, um, you know, my take on something like this from a counseling standpoint would be to discuss all options, but would be to recommend um, surgical excision of this. And, you know, in terms of her interest in, in being as minimally invasive as possible, I think, you know, a minimally invasive approach to surgical resection would be, Sort of a marriage of, you know, less invasive but still extra
2: productive. I I would agree with everything that that Steve said, including importantly making sure that the MRI is reviewed by an abdominal imaging radiologist that really looks at a lot of MRIs. You know, I know that we're going to look at more cuts on this, but on first blush, maybe it's a Bosniak three, but maybe it's not, I'd also counsel this woman that the finding of a renal tumor, potentially malignant, potentially non-malignant, in a 28-year-old is unusual, and there might be a role for biopsy in uh, such a lesion as hers.
1: Great. Yeah, I I think that's what she heard from multiple people. I mean, a little unusual, really young, no no associated findings to suggest some sort of uh associated syndromes um and i let's i'm gonna play through the mr there and i will play through it quickly but then so this is going cranial to caudal i'll go a little slower here great and then tim would any specific thing that you are sort of looking at on this lesion i think the question often is you know if if these are found on ct a lot of times i get a thing saying oh would get an mri or if, if i have a mri it says get a renal ultrasound um so what do you think about different modalities to better characterize this and also i think there was a paper last year looking at sort of trying to revise and update bosniak uh you know classification any anything that the urologist should take away from that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think if you just go from the easiest to the most complex, you know, renal ultrasound is going to be the easiest way to image the kidneys, um, and that's just going to give you a very brief overview of whether or not a mass is either a simple cyst or if there's some complexity to it. A solid mass on ultrasound um, can Will look hyperechoic, meaning it looks brighter than the surrounding parenchyma in the kidney itself. And then the differential for that includes uh, uh, AML as well as a renal mass. So if you see something like that, then you need to get a, a cat a formal CAT scan um, because if you get a CAT scan and it shows a you know the lesion contains fat, then that's pretty much diagnostic of um, <clears throat> of a of a AML. Now some AMLs are will be lipid-poor so they won't have, uh, they'll look more like a solid enhancing mass and that's sometimes where you'll get that MRI for correlation, MRI for further characterization. With regards to Bosniak cyst classification, that's all based off of a CT, not an MR, but it's basically looking at the size of the, of the, the cyst, whether or not there's septations, how many septations are there if there's presence of nodules, if there's calcifications, things like that. And um, as um, everyone else said, every radiologist, there's subjectivity to it, although they're trying to objectify it as best they can. So there's a clear distinction with um, like 2F and 3. It it varies. I would consider this a a 3. When I'm looking at this um, contrast-enhanced MR, what, what we're seeing is a tumor that's completely endophytic that has multiple small enhancing septi. So this would be, to me, considered a Bosniak um, three. You don't see a solid component um, that would suggest it's a a, a Bosniak four. And then as Steve was saying, you you wanna look at this for necrosis. You don't see necrosis. Necrosis is going to show you a a thick rim enhancing margin with irregular margins um, with a central area that'll be non-enhancing on T1 imaging and that will be bright on T2 imaging. So this looks like a, a fairly straightforward Bosniak 3 cyst. And I did want to echo a point
1: that Tim made, I think it's not infrequent that for somebody who has hematuria, they may show up with just a CT urogram or something like that. And I think it really is important for us as urologists to look at it, because it's probably more than once or twice a year, I will just see a contrast enhanced scan. and. If you look carefully, there may be an area of macroscopic fat that I've seen that I've gone back and gotten a non-con CT or an MRI that there's clear macroscopic fat that I think in my mind is pathognomonic for an AML. I know there are reports of, can you get a renal cell with sort of fat? But I would say I've never, if I see macroscopic fat on imaging, I am very convinced it's an AML. And so I think without a non-con, sometimes those little subtle areas of macroscopic fat can be obscured a little bit. Steve and Braj, would you agree? that sort of that's important. And also, have you guys ever been fooled by macroscopic fat and end up being a renal cell?
2: I, uh, I totally echo you. Uh, and I also, on a yearly basis, see a few, a handful of patients who come with only a single phase CT, and you've got to take a step back and go back to the basics and get that non contrasted view um, as well when you're trying to understand the risk of malignancy. Uh, and the presence of macroscopic intravoxel fat. I have had a patient through the different um, abdominal radiologists at my institution went back and forth uh, looking at kind of really slicing um, the onion really thin, the microscopic intravoxel fat and doing all kinds of fancy MRIs and in the end the patient did have a renal cell carcinoma. but. Um, if you were to apply your test and my test that we do in the clinic, there was never macroscopic intravoxel fat. There was microscopic intravoxel fat.
3: Like likewise, I haven't seen, I haven't had the situation where it's confounded by fat and it turns out to be a renal cell. It's been AML, so I, I agree, Max. I think it's very important to to re- look at what sequences you got and, and think back about whether or not you need to get imaging to to, to characterize an AML as you would.
1: Right. And so what actually happened um, in her case, she underwent percutaneous core biopsies, got multiple biopsies of this uh, lesion, and underwent simultaneous microwave ablation. I think sort of the points or the questions for folks is sort of, you know, and Viraj mentioned a little bit, role of biopsy, which I think is reasonable for a young person um, where it's a little atypical. And then I guess some other questions of do you biopsy first, and then making the diagnosis before doing any kind of simultaneous percutaneous ablation. Um, question for Tim, sort of hot versus cold, and do we care if it's cystic versus solid? And then, you know, for everybody, sort of you look at this, if, if, if the decision had been made for a surgery and a partial likely open versus minimally invasive, what would you feel about that?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll touch briefly on the ablation. So, you know, when I see patients for ablation, age is something you want to consider because probably the longest series that we have is maybe from Jeff Kadadu or or the Mayo Clinic where they're they're 10 years for radiofrequency ablation and cryo. So in a younger person, particularly 27, I'm not sure ablation's the best situation, but it is what it is. With regards to... um, biopsying so lots of when if you do ablation you need to do a biopsy Um, and if your interventional radiologist is not doing a biopsy at the same time then they're they're not doing standard of care so you need to do a biopsy at the same time or preferably before Um, there's been one study that I can think of that's looked at biopsy prior versus biopsy at the same time, there's a slightly less accuracy with doing a biopsy at the same time. In our own series here, we tend to get less diagnostic biopsies if we do an ablation at the same time. But That's really in tumors that are small, so like centimeter, centimeter and a half, um, that, uh, that you may have that di- diagnostic uh, uncertainty with doing a biopsy at the same time. With regards to um, burning versus freezing, um, you know, it, it's kind of operator's choice. I think for bigger tumors, cryoablation may be a little bit better or for some tumors that are close to the collecting system, uh, cryoablation may be a little bit better. Uh, microwave is kind of the new radio frequency ablation. Most IRs aren't doing radio frequency, they're probably doing microwave. Microwaves a little bit faster, you don't, there's some technical uh, considerations that make the procedure a little bit easier Um, and the margins tend to be more defined with a microwave over radio frequency. Um, But there's been some reported concern over increased ureteral injuries or collecting system injuries with with heat. If I was doing an ablation in an older patient with something like this, I would Probably do um, microwave um, just because that's I do a lot of that. Although I would consider doing a um, cryo. Cryo, you have to have a bigger margin. Um, what was it? there was one other question that uh, I blanked on that you were wondering about.
1: Um, I guess you you know cystic versus solid masses oh, yeah, yeah. sort of both both how about biopsy accuracy as well as
0: Uh, ablation efficacy? Yeah. So with cystic lesions, you know, cystic lesions have good outcomes as long as the size that you're treating is not too big. And, And ablation's limits are really, I think, reach, they become less effective when the tumor is greater than three centimeters. So Sometimes you'll see a big tumor that has a big cystic component, you can aspirate that component out and then the tumor gets small and then you can burn that tumor. That's a good case. This case here I think is makes ablation a little more challenging because you're not going to get be able to get that tumor size smaller because it's mul- multiple cysts and so what you aspirate, you're not going to be able to aspirate all that fluid out. So. Um, you know, I think that's that's the limiting factor with doing cystic lesions is can you get the fluid out so you can do the appropriate ablation. When you're biopsing cystic masses, the whoever's doing it needs to make sure that they're biopsing the solid component or the more um, uh, more bang for the buck, so to speak. And so in this lesion, there is an area where there are more cystic components, so you would biopsy that. Um, and the accuracy, you know, it, when you have a diagnosis of kidney cancer, it's the positive predictive value is fairly good. But if you have a negative biopsy, the, sometimes the question is, did you miss the target, or or is this really ref, reflective? And I think the bigger question is, is when you start getting, you know, a clear cell, okay, that's an obvious answer, but for situations where you get oncocytic neoplasms um that's a little more tricky to how to best manage those those patients with those results great steve and Baraj, how
1: would you guys let's say her initial decision was surgery of some sort what would you be your preference and why
3: so you know from my take it's really got to be surgeon comfort level um i i don't think that it matters much how the procedure is done as long as it's done correctly. So, you know, at our place, we, you know, we, I, one of my partners, George Child, does a high volume of robotic parson We would look at this together and in a 28 year old who was really interested in a robotic approach, if he said, this is something I would take on robotically, then I would have him do the case. Um, you know, alternatively, if I was going to do this case, I would do it open. Um, and you know, so, so I, I think it's really got to be surgeon comfort level. I think other than that, there are, it doesn't really matter.
2: Yeah, I would agree with what Steve said. Uh, one thing I would say um, about this is that I preoperatively would do an ultrasound to make sure I could see this. If I could see it, um, looking at its location on the scan that you sent me, I think robotic partial is perfectly fine, and so is an open. It's it's all about the ability of the surgeon to get a negative margin. I would say one thing for the trainees and maybe those listening about uh, the role of biopsy. It is critical to make sure that, ideally, there's um, a pathologist available on site when the biopsy is done, or at least someone who can assess whether or not the biopsy is a good quality biopsy. Uh, Large large bore needles um, should be used. Maybe Tim can comment on that. Sometimes the the radiologist will want to put a tiny needle in and aspirate rather than get a true biopsy. If, If the material is fairly scant, then there should be consideration sending this to the cytologist rather than the pathologist since they're used to dealing with um, cellular paucity and can often make a diagnosis for you. Just some thoughts,
0: thank you. I mean, that's a great point. So with renal biopsy, so to do a biopsy, there's two ways of doing things. One's FNA, which stands for fine needle aspiration, and it's basically where you take a 22 or 20 gauge needle and you put through a, a bigger needle that, that needle and just aspirate and poke the whatever you're trying to biopsy a bunch of times and suck out the fluid in the cells. That is not recommended for kidney biopsy. Kidney biopsy needs to be coaxial technique with at least an 18 gauge core biopsy. And you need solid, um, um, good tissue to, to look at that. And uh, I, I think that's a great point. You need to make sure your pathologists are um, comfortable with reading this and comfortable with with looking at this because i'm lucky here the pathologists are great so um you know we get good results with our biopsies but fna is not acceptable and and if someone's doing it that that shouldn't be done um and two uh core biopsies is is really important and i would have done a biopsy
2: before treatment in this in a 28 in this case in a And I think in an older person, maybe one can make a a different um, series of decisions. But this young person should really know what they're up against.
1: Yeah. And so I think what you would have known if you had biopsied it beforehand. uh, So it was called a, you know, Fermin grade two renal cell carcinoma. Although uh, immunohistochemistry was carbonic anhydrase nine and EMA negative and TFE three positive. So the working diagnosis was a translocation tumor and then um, we actually got the specimens here and did in-house sequencing confirming it was a tfe 3 translocation renal cell. Uh, She had an MRI six weeks after surgery that didn't show a whole lot, nothing that you wouldn't, nothing surprising, so I'm not gonna show those images. So, you know, a post ablation kind of appearance And I guess the question is, what do you do next? And then, if Baraj had done the biopsy like you wanted to prior, how how would this sort of information have changed your approach? And what do you do now for her?
2: Yeah, Yeah, tough tough situation. A couple of things. Um, Just because something shows up as TFE3 positive or sometimes negative, It's often hard to make much of it. The antibodies that are used in immunocytochemistry labs are polyclonals, and it's a messy antibody test. So many times when things are called positive, when we in our shop, for example, ship them off to the Mayo Clinic for fish testing, they turn out to be not what we thought they were. So sometimes patients can be miscategorized as having um, translocation tumors, and they don't. The other thing is that... The diagnosis of translocation tumor is kind of a broad umbrella. There's multiple fusion partners of the TFE3 gene product, and we yet in 2020, I don't think, although maybe one of the smart residents can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that we actually know enough about the five fusion partners of TFE3 translocation RCCs and how they behave. Um, personally, if I if this patient, I knew, had a TFE3 positive translocation RCC, I would be interested in trying to get negative surgical margins on her. The scans that you showed didn't show any nodes that were enlarged, but sometimes there can be microscopic node involvement. So I personally would try to get um, do this surgically excised and also get some nodes out um,
1: at that time. Thank Steve, you. what do you think, especially, so what do you think about nodes in this histologic type? We know the Mayo data and what you guys think now at, in 2020 about uh, lymphadenectomy for, you know, renal cells as a whole, although I think this may be a unique situation.
3: Okay, I'm glad you you finished with that. So, so also, <laughs> you know, in terms of lymphadenectomy in a whole, you know, a lot of this credit from the Mayo data needs to go to Boris Gershman, one of our former fellows um, who's now at, at Harvard. Um, because forever we were believing that, you know, any histologic features of aggressiveness, and there was a scale that Mike Blute had put together, um, and if you met a certain threshold, you should have an RPLND even in the setting of radiographic negative nodes as this patient. Um, and then, you know, through an elegant series of statistical modeling and analysis, um, he basically demonstrated very similar to the ORTC trial that it was not of benefit. And I think, you know, his data went beyond the trial in the sense of you know, larger numbers and uh, d- different things, but it was a nice way to companion level one evidence with um, retrospective database stuff. And so our practice has has changed dramatically. Um, and so in somebody, even with high risk primary tumor features in the absence of radiographic clinical adenopathy, we wouldn't do an rpl Now, what to do about the TF3? Um, that, I, 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 that, you know, his data did not include patients like this specifically. I mean, it wasn't, uh, nobody has a you know large specific focus on this. So um, I think here it's a debate. It's 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 you know to the two questions you raised: what do you do next, and what do you what would you have done in the histology? You know, if you'd known the histology, it would have maybe further emphasized a surgical extirpative approach rather than an ablation approach in a 28-year-old. So I would have you know argued more for surgical excision. Um, now I think you have two reasonable options to discuss the patient. One option would be to say we're going to surveil you radiographically because we we don't really know with large numbers what the natural history of this is. Um, and if there is evidence radiographically of recurrence, we deal with it. The other option would be to say, well, you know, you're 28 with no medical problems. You may have had inadequate local tumor treatment and you haven't had the lymph nodes addressed. And then in that setting, um, the option would be to go back and, um, you know, do a redo partial, essential or a partial, understanding it's going to be technically challenging. And with that, Uh, an RPL and D. And I think, you know, understanding the oncologic benefit of that is entirely uncertain. Um, And I think after a fair and frank discussion, both of those are reasonable strategies in this um, to be offered to this patient. I, I, you know, I I would have a hard time pounding my fist on the desk and saying, you have to do this. But I think going back in is reasonable, given what you found here in this patient's age and and health set.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And I do want to echo see, I mean, I think you look at the Mayo data, ERPC, I think the final conclusion generally would be Radiographically normal nodes, there's no indication now to necessarily do an RPLND. But I think that behooves us to look at the imaging pretty carefully and sort of see what you call negative. You know, you may see things that are nine millimeters or right on the border. And, that, that, you know, so it's not a big deal to take those nodes out. And, it, you know, obviously it has a big prognostic importance if somebody's going to be N positive. Uh, nowadays. So I think you got to look at the films and just sort of see, is it truly radiographically normal or not? Um, And so I think they covered all the great points about translocation renal cell. Pretty rare, but now again, since people are looking for it and recognizing it more, I think the IHC is not so accurate. So whether it's fish or sequencing to confirm the translocation, and there's several subtypes, which again, I'm not sure we know the differences amongst them, I think. The, you know the paper about papillary rcc from tcga talks about this a bit so that's a nice paper to look at and i think overall the worry is that it's more aggressive and often higher stage at the time of diagnosis and i think the thing is that i've noticed at least anecdotally i don't know about everybody else but it's like it's not necessarily metastatic disease early but sort of local or local regional so i think that's why i would if i'd known this beforehand At the time of any kind of surgery, if you're going to do a radical or partial, probably would have done a node dissection because there are definitely patients you may cure from removal of regional lymph nodes around there. I think once it's beyond that and you get a recurrence, you know, these patients are not going to do very well overall. Um, And so I think some of the questions they, you know, look at what do we do? I think we'll get to that, you know. you know, the cystic mass or solids, three and a half, a little bit on the bigger side. And what's what's the biggest worry? Is it local recurrence for her or is it distant recurrence? I'm not sure we know necessarily. Um, but again, uh, you know, she was very anxious. So again, getting back to sort of, she you know probably saw six or seven people beforehand. She was really anxious about this. And, you know, again, saw multiple opinions about what to do, do you do, partial versus do you just take the thing out regional lymphadenectomy do do it open or minimally invasive so those are all of the issues um that were talked about i did want to you know everybody's opinion sort of prior ablation whether microwave or cryo or let's say prior open partial for example talk about sort of you know like if in this case how worried or not worried you are about how easy or challenging it's going to be and also now in this day and age where people have had a lot of upfront systemic therapy before we do our surgery on the kidney, whether it's target or immunotherapy, prior procedures, operations, prior systemic therapy, makes your surgery how much harder?
2: A lot harder, I think, (laughs) uh, as a general blanket statement, and I could specifically go over this, the amount of patients that I've taken to the operating room after failed local therapies is not large, but more than 10, less than 20. And in each of those cases, the natural tissue planes that we look for during surgery, either open or minimally invasive, are all gone. And I've done things like partial hepatectomies and so on on failed treatments. And sometimes the local tissue planes that have been destroyed then can lead to tumors growing into contiguous structures. So I do counsel the patient um, when they're signing consents that we may need to do more than we think we're going to have to start out doing. In terms of approach, um, well, uh, Max, you taught me everything I know about kidney cancer, but I would <laughs> say I personally would um, do this open. Um, I When I've tried to do some of these cases um, robotically or, or even LAP, um, I have been confounded sometimes by the incredible reaction to surrounding structures. And and I find open, I have more tools at my disposal to get around those problems. I'd also, um, just to end, for me, I would say that I would 100% counsel her that this is partial, possible, radical, and um, tell her that you may come out of this operating room without your kidney.
3: I I would say the same. I I mean, I think that, um, I would do this open. I think she does have to be appropriately counseled that this is gonna be more difficult. There are people who've reported minimally invasive, redo, salvage surgeries to the kidney. And I, again, I think it has to be more surgeon comfort level and you know, and, and after a fair balance of what's to be gained, um, especially with an RPLND and a redo approach. I think an open midline um, would be what I would favor to go after this. I think discussing with her, just as Viraj said, this is possible, partial, with with the radical has to be on the table, given the previous things. It's likely doable, but it needs to be discussed and counseled appropriately. I think to your point about surgery after systemic therapies, I think we're still learning this, and I think it's going to be different depending on a different type of systemic therapy. Um, you know, there was a, a, a body literature about surgery after TKIs, um, and now there's some emerging stuff about surgery after immunotherapy. There's a recent research letter in European urology that suggests distorted tissue planes, and it's much harder. Um Others haven't had the same experience, um, so I think as the new systemic therapies keep evolving, um, and we do more surgeries consolidatively afterwards, we're going to learn more and more. But I, I, I think it's going to be nuanced, and I don't think you can apply the same blanket principles to surgery after sunitinib to surgery after perhaps ipinibo, um, from a systemic therapy standpoint. So I, I think that that's something that we're still kind of learning. But the salvage
1: after local therapy is, you
3: know, doable but but challenging.
1: Yeah, And those are all the issues that we had counseled her about and again, I think after ablation and open partial, I think redo open partials are actually really, really hard. I think uh, you know, if she had had a minimally invasive uh, partial, that would be a different matter. Um, so we did an open sort of extra peritoneal flank partial nephrectomy and node dissection, and uh, you know, as everybody has mentioned, there was an adjacent peritoneum that we took because we weren’t sure whether there was going to be potentially tumor or not. Uh, pathology is predominantly necrotic and hemorrhagic tumor, although looking via cell viability assay, about 1% of the tumor was viable. And then we did do a node dissection, uh, and there are no nodes involved. And then she's probably four or five years out now. So I think at the end of the day, um, should do well at this point, um, but sort of a difficult case. And here are just some references regarding some of the issues we had talked about, So of good, good things to look at. Great. Any other comments from the panelists? Uh, Carissa, any questions from folks thus far? Sorry. Uh, I have, um,
2: uh, yeah, there is one question here um, about um, what might be coming down the pipeline in terms of urinary biomarkers um, in the diagnostic space for these, for these types of masses.
1: I mean, uh, I'm not sure anything of anything that's really going to be ready for prime time in the next in the near future. I don't know anybody else aware of anything.
2: Uh, aquaporin one and podophyllin have both been looked at. There's a nice gem oncology paper that looks at that. We had published on that a few years ago. There's certainly um, those are probably the two of the biggest ones, particularly aquaporin one. But I don't think, as Dr. Meng said, it's ready for prime time at all
1: great and let's move Um, on oh yes carissa
2: another one that just came in uh what would you have done if the tumor had come back margin positive viable tumor at the margin Mm, great question
1: yeah i guess i would have thought about taking the remainder of the kidney when we did the partial though we we took a wide margin on this to start with i think we said look we have kind of one shot to try to If there's persistent tumor in this, we have one good chance to get it out. And so it was not our sort of pseudo-enucleation. Again, this was a, you know, prior ablated cystic mass. So we kind of went, you know, old school and we're probably a centimeter plus from the margins. But you saw it went pretty centrally close to the the parasinus fat. But we, you know, so I think we tried to make sure we were going to get a negative margin. I guess if we had been positive margin, probably would have been a completion nephrectomy. great right, thank you great so we'll move on hopefully we get through most of this case so 61 year old gentleman excellent health who before seeing us had had three months uh, shortness three months in the event of shortness of breath negative cardiac evaluation and he went back to being very active playing competitive basketball but then had uh two weeks prior some gross hematuria and sort of had the typical hematuria evaluation with imaging um, CT scan was performed, and serum creatinine was uh, not normal for him. Um, EGFR B63, hematocrit of 40. And now let me just run through these uh, coronal films, and I can slow it down a little bit. Let me go back. Um, so, Tim, just quick comment of, I mean, I think yes, everybody-
0: you, you, you got this contrast enhanced coronal image, A large mass arising from the right kidney. Um, it looks like there's extension centrally into the renal vein and just abuts. butts. You can cut right where you're, yeah, it's just, just abutting the IBC. So kind of sticking its, its head out. Um, I don't see any extension up into any more proximal into the uh, intrahepatic IVC or even just the, the main component of the IVC there. Um, situations like this, I think MRVs are helpful to further characterize. And obviously we want to get a CT chest as well to make sure there's no disease in the chest. Right,
1: which we'll go to. And then I'll show the images. I'd say, um, other test, Viraj, would you comment while I show the chest imaging? Would you, what about serum markers and what do you think we should be getting for these patients?
2: Uh, Great question. Thanks, Max. I think there's uh, probably the largest amount of data on serum markers um, is hemoglobin, platelet count, and neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. Um, In Europe and Asia, C-reactive protein um, has been extensively studied in tens of thousands of patients, and each of those has emerged in combination particularly in singly, as well as prognostic and for CRP as a predictive biomarker. So these are low-cost, easily obtainable biomarkers that don't require a specialized lab. Great. That provide independent information to the traditional ways of risk assessing a patient-like
1: performance status. Perfect. And so Tim's chest CT was performed. What do you think?
0: Here you see multiple nodules, right middle lobe, posterior lobe, uh, left lower lobe, right lower lobe.
1: Um, Great. Yeah, and there was no lymphadenopathy in the chest. Um, And, you know, we looked at that and, you know, the way our radiologists called it was they said, you know, right-sided pulmonary nodules. Although you know, my index of suspicion of something else was a little bit higher. You know, his acute shortness of breath. And you kind of look at that film, you're like, that looks.
0: Um, yeah, the baby, and then in the, in that coronal, you also see, you see that, yeah. that there's, he's got thrombus in yeah. the kind of the right PA there. Yeah,
1: sorry, I'm having trouble stopping right it there. there. But yeah, so it looks like he had PE on that right side as well. And as Tim brought up, we had an MRI performed as well. So there was evidence of um, tumor in the vein, sort of up to the IVC, P- going in a little bit. Do you see it right there? Uh, sorry. Um,
0: right there. Yeah, it looks right. like there's a kind of bland thrombus and tumor thrombus, which is why he probably threw that clot up in the lung. Exactly. Um, and we'll get to some of those questions about the
1: thrombus type. I guess if this were on, uh, you know, residents in service, the question will be a healthy six-year-old man has a right renal mass. Imaging studies are shown, creatinine is one, two, three. The next step is A, anticoagulation, B, right kidney biopsy, C, Sunitnib, D, nevoipi, or E, nephrectomy, which we'll you know, touch on some of these points. I mean, I don't, Raj, what do you think the right answer is in 2020 for him?
2: <laughs> um. <laughs> T- tell me again, what well, some of it is nuanced depending on when I'm going to take him to the operating room. So I guess that was my leading thought. So I'm already saying that I don't think this man needs nevo ipi he needs a nephrectomy. But what would give me some pause depending on my surgical schedule um, is if it's going to be a few weeks, I would anticoagulate him before that and then stop anticoagulation before I take him to surgery. I also think, I don't always biopsy people, but this looked um, on some of the cuts like it could be a diffusely involved kidney, not just um, a single central round ball of a tumor with a a cable thrombus. I have been frustrated before when I've operated on people who have turned out to be urothelial cell cancer with cable thrombus because those patients do terribly in my experience, so I would um likely biopsy this man as well. But again, I, I don't often do uh these
1: kind of biopsies. Others, would you biopsy? I think if you looked at guidelines, I think NCCI would strongly say maybe you biopsy this guy, right? He's got metastatic renal cell, although I think it is nuanced, right? With the PE, with IBC minimal burden IVC tumor thrombus, I'd say the vast majority of his disease is in the kidney. He's pretty young, great performance status. So is a biopsy necessarily going to change what you do if you are leaning towards sort of cytoreductive nephrectomy? I don't know, Steve, would you biopsy him or would you kind of say if you could get him on pre-COVID pretty quickly, is that the way to go for him? So here's what I
3: would say. I mean, you know, first, assuming his gross material workup, his cystos is negative, his urine cytology is negative. Um, I get Baraj's point that it was somewhat central, but I didn't appreciate it was quite as infiltrative. The reason in my mind a biopsy would be, as he said, to rule out urethyl, um, and I, didn't, I don't feel strongly about it that this looked that much like it to me that I would do a, a biopsy of it. Um, I would say that in, an, in a patient with an acute PE and symptoms with, as you pointed out, minimal IVC burden of clot, the next step for me, if I were circling one of those choices you had, uh, would be anticoagulation. I mean, our practice in these patients who show up with an acute VTE like this in PE is to give them about six weeks of anticoagulation. Um, and, you know, that allows them to build a little bit of pulmonary reserve and whatnot. It gets it treated. I would also do an ultrasound of his lower extremities just to see what else is going on from a clot burden standpoint, because I think to Tim's point, the, the bland platelet thrombus is not insignificant in these cases with, two, with, with venous tumor thrombus as well. Um, I'm not terribly worried that in a four week or six week period, there's going to be significant. I would re image him. Uh, immediately before surgery w- with another MRV, timely-wise. But my gut sense would be, if he's got acute shortness of breath, and that picture, I would anticoagulate a bit, and yeah. then in, in in somewhere around four to six weeks, bring him back and operate on.
1: Yeah. And see, his shortness of breath was actually three months ago. So he had recovered from that. So that PE had probably been there a little bit of time. Well, so that was a changed. chronic PE? Yeah. Yeah, so then it's <laughs> a little
3: more, so, so okay, um, you know, then, then I think it's on the fence. I mean, I, I still don't think you lose a lot uh, with with four weeks of anticoagulation. Um, but if, if if he was reserved, I'd get an echo and see what kind of RV function he had and how he was compensated for it. But if, if his parameters look good, um, then I wouldn't have a, an objection to taking him to the OR now and operating on him. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and I just, yeah, Tim. I think ECHO is good because you know, there is some reflux into like the hepatic veins, which suggests there may be some right heart strain from that that, that CT. So I think that's important to look at yeah. because the problem is with chronic PE, those patients are at increased risk of having pulmonary hypertension things like that. Yeah. yeah. And he had ECHO,
1: lower extremities. Those were all normal. And I just throw this up sort of a white paper from uh, Jeff, a couple of years ago, you know, I think it's not so clear cut. I think if there's going to be a delay to time of surgery, I would typically anticoagulate. But if it's in the near future for a guy like this, I'm not going to be clinically stable, you know, well if you're compensated, probably an old PE, I probably wouldn't. You know, often we get consulted. You guys probably see this all the time about, God, he's got IBC2. He put a filter in, which I think I really, we try to avoid, because how many times have we all been in there, you know, trying to pull out a filter when you're opening the CAVA that, tumor and or bland throats the clot has grown through. Tim, a, any a brief comment about sort of IBC filter? So back in the, when I started, you put a filter in, it probably stayed in forever. Nowadays, you, I mean, there's a big attempt to retrieve sort of all filters and you guys yeah. put in a lot of these post IBC thrombectomy for some, you know, I, I, you know, we don't infrequently see some thrombosis sort of distal to where or around the area that you do your uh, thrombectomy sometimes, so then you end up putting in a suprarenal filter?
0: Yeah, I mean, we, you probably would try not to necessarily. I mean, if he's, if he's from a pulmonary and cardiac perspective doing okay, you probably try in coagulation before putting in a suprarenal filter. Uh, and then if you did place a filter, we just snare it out, the day before or the morning of the, of the surgery, so you guys aren't, aren't, aren't dealing with it. But, you know, the role of filters in the management of patients with DVT is changing, and, and I think if he was unable to be on anticoagulation, then you definitely would want to do it. But if he was able to be on anticoagulation and his pulmonary and cardiac reserve was sufficient, that he wasn't having issues with it, then I would err on not placing a filter.
1: Great. And I know we're running tight on time, so I just want to, and we talked about sort of the decision. So in this case, I actually did not biopsy him because I thought it wouldn't have changed what I would do for this guy with considering all those factors listed above. And we did proceed with uh, surgery first. Um, you know, again, I would say in general, I tend not to do much preoperative embolization. Steve and Brash, yes or no on that? No. No, no. okay. And yeah, um, any tips or tricks? Brief tips or tricks on how you would approach, you know, you know this kind of IVC tumor thrombus. What's your ideal incision? You know, for him, his anticoagulation obviously is different. What would you do, and when would you restart it, given his his PE? And do you think that's tumor thrombus in the in pulmonary artery, or do you think it's bland thrombus?
2: I think it's bland thrombus. Um, Uh, It's infrequent that you have migration of tumor thrombus into the pulmonary vasculature. And sometimes you can even look at different sequences on the MRI, and Tim could comment on that to look for um, certain things that can clue you off to whether it's actually tumor or bland. I I recently had a young 25-year-old girl with a sarcoma that acutely embolized um, to her pulmonary vasculature. Um, So it can happen, but it's very rare. In terms of incision, um, I've kind of gone more and more um, to less and less. In the sense, uh, I started out doing thoracoabdominal incisions um, years ago uh, in in training, and then I continued that as a faculty member. Then I went to the liver transplant triradiate incision, and now because of the tremendous uh, retraction that's afforded by the hepatic Thompson. Retractor, I do a midline incision on every single patient in the last 150 um, IVC tumor thrombus cases that I've done over the last few years. I've not had to do anything but um, a, uh, a midline incision, which is, extends up over over the xiphoid um, for a few centimeters.
3: So um, we have a debate about this almost on a daily basis at Mayo. One of my partners loves the midline incision. Um, I still do a bilateral subcostal, or at least the right subcostal, and with the option to extend it to a bilateral subcostal, that would be what I would use. Um, we're still debating about whether they get out of the hospital or take less pain pills or whatnot with those two different incisions. So um, I, I would use bilateral subcostal. As far as the, <coughs> the lungs, um, you know, I, I think to Viraj's point, I agree it's probably bland thrombus. There's actually a paper, I think, from, from MD Anderson that's shown that, you know, even when they have this. Um, this uh, known VTE preoperatively. There's not an increased risk of progression, which you might expect if it was tumor thrombus. I think regardless of which it was, I'd still anticoagulate. them because if it was tumor, it's a nidus for bland. So I, I don't know that w- which histology it is matters, but I, I would treat it as, as a platelet thrombus and anticoagulate it.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think you want to anticoagulate. If it's bland, hopefully you see some regression or accelerate the regression. If it's tumor, You hopefully you prevent clot propagation on top of that tumor thrombus, which is what we did. We sent him home on Lovenox, and I'll just go through this quickly. Ended up he had bleeding post-op, required a couple units, um, and, you know, we sent him on Lovenox. Let me, I'll just, so, you know, I just wanted to highlight, you know, we actually, once he stopped bleeding and uh, restarted him, recent paper looking at a Pixavan. so maybe more tolerable for patients to get an oral anticoagulant as opposed to sub-Q. Doesn't look like there's any difference in the bleeding. Again, this was a study done in patients with cancer. So I think for him, it was relatively appropriate. Have you guys transitioned to using Apixaban as opposed to Lovanox or post-op anticoagulation?
2: Um, At our institution, we still use Lovanox. Apixaban, at least in the the Georgia um, formularies, is much more expensive. And so Lovenox, we we get easy insurance approvals for as well. Yeah,
1: same. We use we use Lovenox still. Yeah, and so here's actually a picture of his growth. You can see the tumor itself wasn't that big, but if you look, there are many many little satellite tumors throughout the parenchyma. There, it was a grade four, uh, no sarcomatoid features in this clear cell. Four out of five nodes were positive. So. We, um, you know, we, did, we took nodes all around the area. Uh, repeat imaging was performed six weeks later. He had been an anticoagulator for four weeks, no change in the PE. So stable in the chest, nothing in the abdomen. Uh, what would his next, what would, what would he get at your guys' institution as far as systemic therapy? And I'll go to the slide from NCCN. <laughs> would Raj, Steve, Tim, would he probably get ipinevo, do you think?
3: I mean, most likely he would get a BDEVO at our place. But again, it's still, you know, each one of these is a little nuanced to our medics. But I, I would fit, say that most likely he'd get a BDEVO.
0: Same with uh... us.
2: Or consideration for a clinical trial. Um, so in, this guy, you said, played competitive basketball at age 61. I wish I could do that. But. Um, there are now trials of pegylated IL-2 in combination with um, Ipinivo. So if you're going to try to pull out all the stops on um, someone who you would like to, to give as much therapy as possible who can tolerate it, hopefully there's some, there's some trials. There's also Tony Chawari has a trial of um, a similar kind of triplet um, immunotherapy combination. So I'd probably be trying to offer him trials if possible. For because of how fit he was to begin with
1: yeah so he got started on ipi I- and is doing well on that i mean i think i think one argument for ipi nevo is you look at the data the cr rate for ipi nevo may be higher than things like axi and pembro right i mean i think the sense is you look at maybe 10 or 11 or 12 percent and i think for any other agent it's probably going to be 2, 3, 4, 5%. So I think that could be an argument of ipinivo relative to the other things, if all the other things being equal. Um, and I know we're right up on time. So I mean, I think I'll just throw these slides up so people can review them later. Just talk about, so I think things have definitely shifted for cytoreductive nephrectomy in 2020. You know, I think with results from Carmina and SIRTIME, I think the, our practice pattern has definitely changed. I think for sure how our medical oncologists Counsel people, I mean, I think they really are really pushing against cyto reductive nephrectomy. Is that your guys' sense at your centers that the Medonc bent is really for upfront systemic, or how much has that changed for you guys?
3: I think from our standpoint, it yes, it, it there is a bent towards upfront systemic therapy. Um, but given the responses that we're seeing with the newer agents, um, I actually would not say our Medoncs are against cyto reductive nephrectomy with the, you know, appropriate window of response to, to systemic therapy. So um, they're actually fairly surgically aggressive depending on the patient's response after initial systemic therapy to consider, you know, consolidative cytoreductive surgery. So, yeah, I, you know, I think it, what those trials did in my mind is really emphasize the importance of risk stratification yep. and the very limited downside to an initial course of systemic therapy as the litmus test.
2: I think that's reasonable. We have a nuanced view on this. Certainly, large, bulky, symptomatic tumors, we would proceed on with cytoreductive nephrectomy. At Geoasko this year, um, Jason Abel and I put together a cytoreductive consortium, and then you know our around 1,200 patients, our data was completely different than um, Carmina, and so restratification is important, but also including those risk stratifiers that. Uh, we're not captured by IMDC alone, things like patient frailty, um, sarcopenia, others. So I think that's relevant. So I think sending it to an experienced center is probably a good idea and an experienced surgeon. The eyeball is still a good test. Yeah.
1: And I just throw this up. I know Chris has popped on because we're right up But I, You know, if you didn't have pulmonary lesions, at N-positive, high grade, you know, the question of adjuvant therapy, many trials, you know, I think, at our institution, he probably would not have gotten anything if his post-op imaging was negative. And just to throw up a slide here, trials that mo- probably all of us have enrolled a lot of patients on, you know, uh, pretty much everything other than s has been uh, negative, all different mechanisms of ty- and types of uh, therapy. So I think in general, even in this young, healthy guy, we would not have uh, applied adjuvant therapy. Is that true for you guys as well? Yep. yep. Same. Same. Yeah. Great. Um, well, I wanted to thank Tim and Steve and Baraj and the organizers and Chris, Carissa. Carissa, in the last minute, any, any questions you think we should uh, try to address?
2: Um, nothing that's come through the Q&A. Um, I did want to talk about the, um, you know, the Carmina sort of time trial that you already overviewed. So I'm, I'm glad we did that. Um, just a, a thank you here from one of our attendees for a great talk. Thanks for organizing, Carissa. Thanks for moderating, Max. Thanks
1: Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks again, everybody. Hopefully this was uh, helpful and educational and looking forward to learning in this new era. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to
3: you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.